My mommy said that God sees everything He knows I'm good and I just want to be Friends with these kids who are so mean to me Why can't you all be nice to me? Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. On today's episode, we got a special surprise. We got a celebration. We're celebrating, so I'm wearing my masquerade mask. It's a, it's a plastic mask that I happen to wear for all the frequent masquerades that I attend, but it's a celebration, so I am wearing this mask. But today we are celebrating a famous theologian. You might know him. Famous theologian came out as an open theist. You may have missed it. It was quite some time ago. Let me let me try to figure out when exactly this was. Uh, the year 2000. So about 20 years ago, this guy came out as an open theist. You will never guess who it is. What do I got here? This is his open theist manifesto where he comes out as an open theist. It is our own Bruce Ware. And he comes out as an open theist in his book, God's Lesser Glory, which is great. Uh, welcome to the fold, Bruce Ware. Thank you for converting to open theism. Uh, we're, we're happy to have you. We welcome you with open arms. Uh, fellow open theist Bruce Ware, which is ironic because he led the charge to get open theists uh, kicked out of the evangelical theological society. He tried to Adam shift us. It failed. His impeachment failed, of course. But, but finally, he saw reason. He saw the light. He wrote a book about it coming out as an open theist. Now, I'm not going to read this book right now, but we are going to go to famous Calvinist uh, Dr. Dozel and what he says about Bruce Ware coming out as an open theist in Bruce Ware's book, which it, it's the Diminished God of Open Theism, which is kind of an awkward title for a book in which you come out as an open theist to say, to have a subtitle that says The Diminished God of Open Theism, kind of weird, but uh, let's see what ha Dolezal has to say about this. He says, again, the driving conviction seems to be that anything less than correlative relationality would not count as meaningful interaction between God and his mortal creatures. Dolezal is setting up the idea of God. Who is God? God is utterly simple and unchangeable. This is the heart of theistic mutualism. And it motivates a key part of Ware's appeal to his open theist counterparts. His open theist counterparts. Ware, Ware is a fellow open theist. Uh, come join the group, Ware. Uh, group hug, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining, Ware. You are an open theist. In fact, he professes a common cause with open theists on precisely this point. Open theists. This is uh, Ware talking. Open theists are certainly right to seek ground and embrace the real relationship between God and his human creatures, particularly his own people. Classical theism is vulnerable at this point and is in need of some correctives. However, the classical model can be modeled and can sustain the real, vibrant, and reciprocal relationship between God and others. What simply is wrong is the notion that to uphold the real relatedness of God with others, one must adopt some newer version of free will theism. This is what Doelzell says. It is crucial to understand that Ware's dispute here is an in-house disagreement with his fellow theistic mutilists. Uh, yeah, open theists, sometimes we disagree. Sometimes open theist Bruce Ware disagrees with open theist me. But we're all open theists. It's a big, a big happy group. He shares this back to Doelzel. He shares common ground with process and open theists on the question of being 
and becoming in God. Like them, he endorses the idea of a God who is subject to alterations of being. Fundamentally, fundamentally, changing in God is open theism. If God can change, open theism is true. Thus, for where God is becoming in some respect. But in conceding that God is moved by his creatures, where does not accept the open theist claim that intelligent creatures are sometimes the independent, autonomous, and original source of change in God. But Bruce Ware, uh, he might not believe in free will, but he is an open theist. And uh, uh, mad respect for you, Bruce Ware. You you've at first paint yourself as anti-open theist, and then you come out in a book called The Diminished God of Open Theism, you come out as an open theist. A big celebration, party all around. We're, we're glad to have you, Bruce Ware. Bruce Ware, open theist. I, I didn't think it would happen, but it did. It did. Bruce Ware, the open theist. So let's, he's got a new video out, and uh, let's listen to him and see what kind of open theist he is and what his criticism of fellow open theists is. All right, Bruce Ware, take it away. That's a re really good question, because if you look at a number of places in Scripture, it uh, looks as though the answer to that would be yes. But I believe when you consider everything the Bible teaches, the answer is actually no. He this, this is on the question, does God change his mind? Is open theism true? So Bruce Ware, uh, he's a lot different than I imagined him. I imagined him uh, fatter, but he's, he's pretty fat too. Uh, so, uh, but I did imagine him fatter. And I imagined him with less hair, but uh, he's got a lot of hair and he's like medium fat. He's not like large fat. He's not like super large fat either, just a normal fat. And uh, he's got a lot of hair, also a beard. The beard's kind of kind of light beard, but didn't imagine that whatsoever in my mind. I just learned the other day that some people can't imagine images in their mind, but uh, I definitely imagine this Bruce Ware guy is more of a fat like uh, President Polk type guy. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. Open Theist Bruce Ware, go on, tell us about uh, God changing his mind. He doesn't literally change his mind because of what that would mean, and that is that he doesn't know in advance something that's going to take place uh, and, and so learns something and then changes his mind. Yeah, so he says, Bruce Ware says in his book, on open theism, that God changes his mind relationally, he reacts and interrelates with creatures. In that sense, he changes his mind, but also creatures are fated. So God changes in some respect, open theist Bruce Ware says, uh, but, not, but not people. People are determined, deterministic people. Remember when Bruce Ware said that he was a Calvinist open theist at some, at some point? Uh, who am I? We're talking about Boyd. Greg Boyd. Greg Boyd at some point of his life said he was a Calvinist open theist. That's what Bruce Ware is. He's a Calvinist open theist. Fantastic. Tell us more, Bruce Ware. Of course, this has been a view that uh, has been uh, advanced by a group of theologians called open theists who denied what the church in all of its uh, manifestations have always held. Clarification, Bruce Ware doesn't speak for all open theists. He only speaks for his particular brand of open theism. Go on, Bruce Ware. That God's omniscience includes his knowledge of everything future, everything. And, uh, and that's been denied by open theists. They deny that God 
can't even know uh, the future free choices and actions, including the free statements that humans beings will, will make uh, in the future. So God learns as people do things, as people say things. So notice that he's representing, uh, there, there's a lot of little subsets of open theism. There's some open theists that say future actions can't be foreknown. I can foreknow a lot of free will actions of different individuals. I foreknow that uh, over 50 people will watch this on YouTube and over 50 people will listen to this on SoundCloud. You know, it's not hard to do. I can know. I'm not very powerful. I'm not a very powerful guy, but I can know future free will actions of some things, right? It's it's something I can do. And people will be like, oh, you don't know that. Well, well, I do know that and it will happen. And I'll tell you after it happens that it did happen. Like just the other day, I was talking to this uh, Calvinist lady. And I said, when I get home from work, I'm going to take my kids and I'm going to force them to watch uh, the Dave Rubin, Michael Malice interview, the latest one. And she's like, you don't know that. I said, I'll report back to you after after it happens and, and my prophecy would have come true because the whole discussion was about prophecy. How does prophecy come true? And she gave like three options. So I was interacting with her and she said, there, there's three three options for prophecy fulfillment. It's just a coincidence or it's uh, eternally foreknown, uh, like God sees the future or God makes everything happen like meticulously determinism. And so those are her three options. Uh, so which was it for me making my kids watch that interview which one of those options, how did I make that prophecy come true? Am I, am I now a true prophet? Is that, or, or was it just, just a random coincidence? Uh, no one could have foresaw that coming, just a random coincidence. That, that didn't happen. Was, did, I, did I control everything? Did, did I know the future? Maybe, maybe I'm a biblical prophet in her mind because my prophecy came true. I don't know. I don't know, but Bruce Ware, he's going to tell us all about prophecy. I think he's going to go into Isaiah. I have not watched this video. So you and me, uh, we're exploring this together, but I do think I was like clicking around in it like a little bit. And I think he talks about Isaiah a little bit. And so we'll talk about prophecy and then he could tell us how his open theism beliefs differs from other subsets of open theism. Bruce Ware? But uh, boy, there's so much in the Bible that indicates otherwise. I mean, just look sometime if you're interested in this question, uh, particularly from Isaiah 41 to there 48. Boom. I mean, there are, um, goodness, a half a dozen or more places where God says, you know that I am God because I can declare the future before it takes place so that when it does, you know I am God. Right. So when I said my kids were going to watch that interview, um, that doesn't mean I'm God, though, right? So it's like, I'm not God. If, in case anyone's confused, I'm not God. I made this prophecy, and it wasn't like a prophecy from Yahweh or anything like that. It was my own prophecy. I was prophesying for myself and my family and the future. Uh, so my own prophecy uh, came true. How did that, how did that, I, I'm confused. How did my prophecy come true? It's, uh, let's try to think of uh, how exactly prophecy can come true. Uh, it's probably not coincidence because that was a pretty specific prophecy on my part. So not co coincidence. Uh, I don't think I control all things. I'm not particularly powerful. I, I can't do too much. I could do maybe maybe like a three-minute plank. That That's pretty powerful, but I, I think other people could do longer planking, right? I could probably run six miles in 
in like one fell swoop. But there's these people who run these marathons. I think they're a little bit more powerful. So it's not that I control all things. Okay, so what, what else do we got? Is it meticulous foreknowledge of the future? I, I have like a crystal ball and I'm, I'm looking into the future and that's how the... Oh, no, that wasn't it either. Uh, it was, I have power enough to accomplish the things that I say that I'm going to accomplish. Okay, that's the one we're going to go with. Uh, that's the one I'm going to go with. I don't know about this lady who had those other three options, what she's going to go with. So it's, it's going to be it's going to be pretty hard for her. So we wonder what Bruce Ware here is going to do. Uh, how does God know the future from Isaiah? Hopefully he goes into the Isaiah text and tells us how, what the mechanism is that's uh, specifically described in Isaiah by which God can know his prophecies come true. Bruce Ware, tell us all about that. I, I don't know. I don't think he's going to. Maybe maybe I'll make a prophecy. Ooh, I don't think he's going to go into the context to specifically describe the mechanism of God's knowledge of the future. What, 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 what say you guys? And so God really puts his deity to test on whether or not he can predict the future whether he knows the future. And that future includes, in Isaiah 46, declaring the end from the beginning. So it really is comprehensive. It's The end of what? From the beginning of what? If only, if only something in Isaiah told us what the end was and what the beginning was, we got declarations to people in Isaiah. God says in Isaiah that he doesn't do anything in secret. He declares to people. Then he says, I'm declaring to you, a new thing. So these declarations are two people. So the beginning of what? Oh, God's work. And the end of what? God's work. And it's not everything that ever happened. Some some Calvinists, uh, not Bruce Ware because he's an open theist, but some Calvinists, uh, they, they think that God meticulously decreed everything. But remember in Isaiah, God does not declare in secret. He declares to people and it specifically says in Isaiah, I said it and then I did it and then it came to pass. God gives the mechanism. God can do things. Ah, it, that's, it's so controversial when you start talking to Calvinists. God can't do things in their mind. God got either, either there's two options. Remember, we had Our Lady with the three options. There's two options for Calvinists. Either God does everything or God can do nothing. God's incompetent. So it's one or the other. Take your pick. Uh, that's Calvinism. My experience, God cannot make a rooster crow in the Bob Enyart uh, debate with that California guy that uh, he, he he literally had to convince a Calvinist uh, radio guy that God can make a rooster crow. That's something that God can do. You know, it's it's the Calvinists, they don't believe it. But I, I do believe God can do that one thing. If, if God could do some things, that might be one of those things that he could perhaps do, make a rooster crow. Everything that takes place in all of history, God knows in advance. And this is not an outlandish view. This is the view the church has always held. It really, the outlandish view is the view of open theists, which would deny that. But, you know, there are texts that, that uh, would lead people to think that might be the case. Um, Think, for example, I'm just pulling one example out of uh, many we could look at in the Bible, but in 1 Samuel 15, it's very interesting because uh, twice in verses 11 and 35, uh, God says regard, in regard to Saul that he regrets or he changed his mind regarding Saul being king. Uh, the Hebrew word there is the word nacham. It's 
So I think we're going to rewind it real quick to see precisely what he says. Precisely what he says. He regrets, or he changed 35. Uh, God says regard, in regard to Saul that he regrets, or he changed his mind regarding Saul being king. Uh, the Hebrew word there is the word nacham. So God says it, and the narrator says it. I didn't, I didn't hear the narrator part, but uh, he did get the God right. God did say it. Now, but let's see what he says. It's now. a word that can be translated as regret or relent or repent or change of mind. So you have in that chapter two times uh, stated that, that God changed his mind or relented that he made Saul king. But then in the middle of that very same chapter in 1 Samuel 15, you have one of the most the strongest statements anywhere in the Bible of the fact that God cannot change his mind or does not relent. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. So there's that same word. Who's talking? Nacham again. So verse 11, he said he changed his mind. Verse 29, uh, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. He's not a man that he should change his mind. So it's a, it's a Who's talking? very fascinating chapter on this question because you've got, two, you've got four uses of Nacham. Two of them saying he does change his mind. Two of them saying he can't. Well, who's talking? I, I, I think we're missing some context here. Who is talking in those passages? So we got God talking. Uh, you, you already mentioned that. God says he doesn't change his mind. And the narrator, or the God says that he does change his mind. The narrator says that God changes his mind. And who is it that says God doesn't change his mind? Oh, yeah, it's a character in the text. It's Samuel, right? And so what's Samuel doing? Is Samuel overwriting God? Is is that what Samuel's doing? Because he says, oh, God says that he changed his mind here. Uh, but listen to my metaphysics. My, I got some metaphysics to tell you. Uh, Saul, Saul, I, I know we are in this situation where, you know, the kingdom's been taken from you. Uh, but it can't be given back. And the reason is, metaphysics, God is immutable. Uh, he can't change. There, There's no change in any detail. He's kind of like eternally simple. And he can't have any like changes like there's no like different parts that could be related to each other and then uh he's perfectly immutable by the way saul so uh so in that sense you cannot get the kingdom back and saul's sitting here like what the heck i what i'm t we're trying to have a conversation and you just start talking absolute nonsense metaphysics what what is what does not changing have to do with not giving me the kingdom back because god just took the kingdom from me and so uh, isn't taking kingdoms something that God can do, even if God is this immutable that you're trying to tell me about for some reason, Sam? Is this what go is going on in the text? Is this Bruce Ware? Is this what is happening in Samuel? This this impromptu metaphysics lesson, uh, fantastic. I think I think Saul might be a little confused here. I think I think Samuel probably should have spent more time developing this immutability point. So which is it? You know, I, I think you cannot say that the writer of Scripture isn't aware of this problem. I mean, I just th think that's ridiculous. I mean, he's, he's speaking or writing in the Hebrew language where that same word is used in opposite ways. So I think that... The I wonder, I wonder if, uh, if Bruce Ware, hopefully he works at some sort of, I don't know, like a seminary or something, where he could look at what biblical scholars such as uh, Terence Fretheim and Walter Brueggemann say about this verse and the usages of this verse and and hopefully 
hopefully he knows what open theists say about this passage enough to to shut that down as an option. Uh, maybe, well, oh, Bruce Ware, he is an open theist, so maybe, maybe, maybe he's uh, just playing his, his cards right. He's not going to completely refute open theism in this video because he secretly wants us to succeed because uh, he's one of us. One of us. One of us. Clue comes in verse 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind. Notice he, he juxtaposes change of mind with something we know from Scripture God cannot do. He always speaks the truth. So just as God always speaks the truth and never lies, so he never literally changes his mind. It may appear as a change of mind because of a change in action. I, I don't. I must have missed it. Who's, who's talking here? Who's talking? Who's saying what? Right. He made Saul king. Now he's removing the kingship from Saul. So a change of action looks to us like... God changed his mind. It might even be recorded that way because of phenomenologically, that's how it looks to us. From a so I got it. So God says that he repents, but it's it's just it's just language. It's just how it looks to us. So when God says that he repents, um, you know, it's just kind of in our minds. When the narrator says God repents, uh, we're just you know that's not really what it what what's going on there. But when a character in the text says God repents, ah, it's our metaphysics. God is unchangeable. Of course, of course, Bruce Ware doesn't quite believe that, does he? Bruce Ware, Bruce Ware, you don't quite believe that God's immutable, do you? In perspective, but literally, he cannot lie or change his mind. The second uh, phrase in verse 29, he's not a man that he should change his mind. Now, here's the thing. Uh, men, human beings, uh, sometimes change their minds and sometimes don't. Well, if we say of God that he sometimes changes his mind, like with Saul, and sometimes he doesn't, well, he's just like a man. But here it says he's not a man. So the only way to make that meaningful is to say he's not like men, like human beings, who sometimes change their mind. In other words... The only way to make that meaningful. Oh, he's got, he's got the only one way to make that meaningful. Again, I, I, don't, I don't think Bruce Ware... I know he's a, he's a good... good uh, hard Bible-believing open theist, and, and he loves open theism, and he definitely is an open theist, but I, I don't think his his uh, studying on this verse has been very deep. I, he might be just off the cuff. Maybe he was ambushed with a question, and he had to pull up a random scripture that he's never studied or never thought very much about, and then had to expound on it. And so I feel a little bit sorry for the guy that he thinks there's no other thing that could be meant other than God is immutable here, that God is not a man that he should repent. It, it can't be that, you know, people, they could be bribed and they could be convinced. But in this specific instance about this specific re revocation of Saul's kingdom, that God's not going to backtrack on this one issue. It couldn't be context specific. It couldn't be limited in scope to the immediate point. And that could be the, the perfect resolution to this supposed contradiction in which a character in the text that Bruce Ware wants to affirm contradicts God, what God says about himself, and the narrator says about God. It couldn't be that. It, there's only one way, according to Bruce Ware, to make sense of this. That's immutability.
that he doesn't believe in because he's an open theist. He never does. So I think the best resolution of this is to say that he never does literally change his mind. What he does is change what he said was going to take place before. Now, here's a, uh, another interesting example of this would be uh, with Jonah, where you know he sent Jonah to, to Nineveh, and uh, it's interesting Jonah didn't want to go. Even though Jonah did not like the people of Nineveh, uh, the, the reason he didn't go is precisely because of what ended up happening, right? He didn't go because he knew from the get-go what was really going on here, that he would go and proclaim 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed, and what's going to happen? Well, they're going to repent. And <laughs> Jonah thought Nineveh was going to repent? That's what Jonah thought? That Nineveh would What are the chances of that? Uh, Jonah has such... Yeah, he's he's a visionary. He knows all sorts of things. There's a lot of preaching that goes on in the Bible. And uh, the number of times the people being preached to repent is almost nothing. And so uh, Jonah is the true visionary. Bruce Ware's got it right. Uh, he's read Jonah, apparently. And apparently, in the text, Jonah's a visionary. He understands that the wicked Assyrians who hate Israel uh, don't know who God is, worship all sorts of pagan gods, that they are going to repent. What a visionary. Bruce, where, where, where were you when I was reading Jonah? Because I didn't pick that up at all. Uh, maybe if you were there to help me read it, I could have read that in there somewhere. Jonah, it, it seems to me, I don't know, I'm just a guy who, who reads things sometimes. It seems to me that Jonah's stated reason that uh, he didn't want to go to Nineveh is because he knew God was a God who changed his mind. God changes his mind. I didn't see any, I, I must have missed it. There wasn't anything about knowing that Nineveh would repent. Let's see what this says. Uh, and he prayed to the Lord. This is Jonah. Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and repenting. That's the word there. Same word used in Samuel repenting from disaster. And he says, so God, I knew that you changed your mind, so I'm not going to go here. I didn't want to go here. But about true true visionary Jonah, he knew these Ninevites, you know, they were, they were just on the cusp. They, they were just waiting for a preacher. They're just going to repent just like that. True uh, Jonah, brilliant visionary, prophet of the future. God's going to be gracious. Wouldn't you know it? Uh, and not destroy the people afterwards. And he doesn't want to go and be a part of that. And of course, he's rebuked for that in chapter 4 of Jonah, right? So it, it is not the case that God didn't know in advance that Nineveh was going to repent. If you conclude that, you'd have to say Jonah had more insight into what was going on than God. Wow. Well, what what brilliant takeaways from the text, Bruce Ware. It's, it's almost like maybe... I, I didn't get any of that from reading Jonah, that God knew that Nineveh would repent and that Jonah knew Nineveh would repent. I didn't get any of those things. Well, true visionary Bruce Ware, where were you all my life uh, when I'm reading the Bible so I could pick up these grand insights? Right, because why didn't Jonah want to go in the first place? I knew you would be gracious. I knew you would be compassionate. You know, he says in chapter four, God, of course, knew that was going to take place. So when it says... 
So where do we get that in the text that God knew all these things were going to happen? I I don't think I don't think he cited anything. I think this uh, Jonah scholar, this uh, Bruce Ware guy, I think I think he forgot to tell us the part in there which indicates that God knew the future. His argument seems to be this. Jonah knew the future. I'm, I'm still a little confused on this one. I don't see where Jonah knew the future. Jonah knew God's character. I don't think, I don't, I didn't see anything. He didn't, did he quote anything where Jonah knew the Ninevites would repent and then God would repent? He just thought it was a waste of time that, uh, and if it was successful, it'd be a bad thing, right? That's, that seems, it seems maybe, may, I'm not as a scholarly as Bruce Ware. So maybe Bruce Ware saw somewhere in there where Jonah knew the future. And from that, if Jonah knows the future, uh, then God must know the future and more. Uh, fantastic. This is this seems to be his argument because I don't see any verses in which God knows the future in the book of Jonah. I, I, I must have missed that part. In fact, in fact, the text says in ver- chapter 3, uh, the last verse, you, you know, you click on Jonah 3, you scroll all the way down. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God repented of the disaster he said he would do to him. He did not do it. So God said he was going to do something and then didn't do that. Based on uh, ocular, visual, visual observation of the city. God, God received information and then he acted on that information. No immutability. There, there's interaction with the world. It's discursive thought. It's discursive knowledge. It's God learning. God acting on learned knowledge, discursive thought in God in Jonah. This doesn't seem like Calvinism. It doesn't seem like God knows the future or God God sees. And seeing doesn't have to be with eyes. Remember, in ancient uh, Israelite uh, religion, in ancient Israelite world, metaphors, they, di- they didn't have to be the visual metaphors that we, we look at today. So sight is more about acquiring information than it is using your eyes to get uh, streams of vision, streams of light into your mind. And so our Western way of thoughts is a little bit different. We'll have to talk about that in a different podcast, but uh, that that's what it means. God is acquiring information. That's what this means. That's what it's stating. And somehow, somewhere, we get from all that God eternally knew the future. Thank you, Bruce Ware, a uh, real biblical scholar. He's doing such a grand job on all these verses talking about open theism. He is an open theist, so he must know open theism. That God changed his mind or he relented concerning the judgment that he would bring upon Nineveh. It doesn't mean that God went, oh, how about that? You know, Nineveh repented. I didn't expect that to happen. I mean, then you're in this position where Jonah knew more than God did. So, no, no, of course that's not the case. So what... Argument from implication. Where's where's my shots when I got one? Maybe I need to start taking shots when uh, we do some of these these types of arguments. God did was, though, employ Jonah to, to say something that would elicit what God knew would take place so that he could bring the forgiveness to them that he intended from the first place. So... So I didn't get any of that from reading Jonah. I've read Jonah quite a few times. Uh, I, in fact, very much like Jonah. It's a, it's a great book. And and uh, I listen to what scholars say about Jonah. I read scholars on Jonah. Christine Hayes has a whole thing on Jonah. Uh, but none of them seem to have all these takeaways that you got, Bruce Ware. I, I wonder 
if you've read anything outside your own mind on this chapter. I, wa I wonder if that happened. We're talking about open theism. Have you read any open theists on this? Have, have, have you seen what they say about what you're saying here, if, if what you're saying is even accurate? So I don't think we should interpret passages like that as a movement in God from plan A to plan B because God has learned something new. Rather, it's a movement from plan A part one to plan A part two. So let's, let's go look at the text again and see what it says. When God saw, God repented. Oh, what did God repent of? What he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Seems like a change. God said he's going to do something. Then God doesn't do it. What's that based on? Seeing something. When God saw, God repented. Huh, seems like a change. Seems like God's changing that has in the middle this interesting connection of, oftentimes anyway, human involvement, where he involved Jonah in this to bring this message and the people's response by which he would do in the end what he planned from the beginning, but through the route of the, the you know, declaration, 40 days in Nineveh will be destroyed, their repentance, and then God brings the, the forgiveness to them. So it is not the case. This is a very, very strange argument for an open theist to be making. But go on, Bruce Ware. He said God learned something new and literally changes his mind. One of the places where open theists love to go to talk about God changing his mind, and this is the account of God telling Abraham to go to this mountain where I will show you, and, uh, and you are to sacrifice your son Isaac there, right? Remember that account? So Abraham does that. Not only open theists like to go there, but uh, professors... Biblical scholars convert to open theism based on this passage. Let's go read some of that. Here we go from Jews, Christians, and the Theology of Hebrew Scriptures by Joel Kaminsky. So what might we learn about God from this story? I remember the moment when that dimension of the text opened up for me. My homiletics colleague Richard Ward and I were doing a teaching session together, and he recited Genesis 22 from memory. In the freshness of that new medium, I heard a verse I had always passed over before, although I did not recall his giving it any special emphasis. Again, the angel of the Lord is speaking, Do not stretch out your hand to the lad, and do not do a single thing to him, for now I know that you are a God-fearer, and you did not withhold your son, your only one, from me. If we take those words seriously, and in this narrative, not a word is wasted, then we have to believe that there is something God knows, now knows for a first time for all, is theocentricity. The book of Genesis gives little comfort to the doctrine of divine omniscience. What God knows now is so crucial that this is the most terrible test, verse 1, was that was devised in order to show whether, in fact, Abraham cares for God above everything and everyone else, even above Isaac, his son, his own slender hope for fulfillment of God's prophecy. So not only, not only the open theist turn here, non-open theist turn here, and then convert to open theism. <clears throat> he goes on, I spoke earlier of cultivating generosity towards the text. If we are indeed to befriend it, generosity towards the Old Testament must mean this at least, accepting the text on its own terms, literally, 
working seriously with the language it offers us. The advantage of this present reading is that it is directed by the words of the passage rather than by an extraneous idea, the immortality of child sacrifice, the omniscience of God. However valid that idea might be in another interpretive situation. So it's leading leading scholars to open theism, this text. Let's hear what Bruce Ware says about Genesis 22. He and Isaac go, leaves the, leave the servants behind, and uh, he prepares the altar, puts Isaac on top of it, takes the knife, and is about to plunge the knife into the, the heart of his son. The Lord stopped Abraham before he completed the act. And he, and he said, Abraham, uh, do, do, not, do not kill your son, for now I know that you fear me. So open theists take that to mean, ah, isn't that clear indication that uh, God learned something new? This not only open theists, but not open theists, secular scholars as well. Uh, everyone except for uh, evangelical hacks who have their own theology. This was a test by which God was really looking to see if Abraham would be faithful. Well, here's the problem with that. Notice what it says, or one of the problems. Notice what it says that God supposedly learned that he didn't know before. He learned that he feared God. But hadn't Abraham given a number of occasions in the past already to show that he feared God? I mean, we don't know exactly how old Isaac was, but maybe around 15 years old. Well, what about 15 years earlier when God said, no, Abraham, through you and Sarah, not through Ishmael, through you and Sarah, you will have a son. And we read in Romans 4, uh, that, that Abraham's own body was now as good as dead. Sarah's womb was dead. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. So Bruce Ware's argument seems to be, if I were God, I would have already believed Abraham uh, was uh, Yahweh, God-fearer, that uh, he was faithful to me, that he's my guy. So Bruce Ware is saying, if I were God, I would have already believed this thing that God found out here. Therefore... Therefore, the text can't mean what it says uh, because I think I'm smarter than God. I, I think this test uh, has already been fulfilled previously. It's a worthless test, basically. So what, what are you doing, God? It must not have been a legitimate text. The text, you know, you just kind of read it and it doesn't really mean what it says because, you know, I, I got in my mind what would make me believe the test results. And that those are already already fulfilled. So this is this is a worthless test. God, what you doing here? This is Bruce Ware's argument here. Uh, but but believe that what God had promised, he was able also to do. Therefore, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So Abraham believed. Well, that is fear of God. We got a lot of problems here. Remember, we just talked about Jonah, where Jonah knew something God didn't, which, uh-oh, uh -oh, we can't have that. But Bruce Ware, Bruce Ware now said that he knows something. He knew something that God didn't. We got we got serious problems going on here. Uh-oh. Back then. So I don't think you can say that God literally learned something he didn't know before. Namely, Abraham is a God-fearing man. Oh, no, he knew that. So what it has to mean is, is to. that God witnessed now at this moment what he had always seen in Abraham. Right. So the test was already known. The test didn't actually produce any 
real results. The test is for us. Like sometimes we pray, you know, we, we don't pray for God. We, you know, the Bible doesn't support that idea that we pray and change God. Prayers for us, it makes us feel better. It gives us comfort in the here and now. And it doesn't, doesn't affect God at all. And so that's what this, these tests do as well. So the tests are for us. It kind of makes us feel differently. They're not for God. So when, when the Bible says that God is testing people to see what they're going to do. It just means it's for us, for us to see what we do and not God. Um, fantastic. Bruce Ware, a biblical scholar extraordinary. Open theist, by the way. Did, did anyone read his book where he came out as an open theist? It's called uh, The Diminished God of Open Theism. He comes out as an open theist, Bruce Ware. For from the time that he had called him from Ur of the Chaldees, to go to this place that I will show you. You know, it's amazing. Uh, he had seen this God-fearing quality in his life, and here it is again. If you really do insist on in interpreting that passage the way that open theists do, listen to Genesis 18, because here you have, I mean, goodness, if you're going to, you know, push this sort of literal reading in a way in which God learns something new, uh, in Genesis 18, there were these three who come to Abraham. One of them goes in the so here's this other argument. It's the U2 argument. Like, uh, you can't believe this thing over here because look at this thing over here. You'd have to believe this thing in this specific way too. So it's not it's not arguing a text on its own merits. It's trying to shame someone into like like let's say uh, there's a someone who cheats on someone, you know, and uh, then you you try to criticize that person. It's an adulterer, and so it says you're an adulterer too. Okay, that doesn't that doesn't make the first adultery go away, right? That doesn't mean that that other person that you're originally criticizing is not an adulterer. It puts you in a hypocritical position, but the merits of each individual case need to be examined on their own, or else it's a logical fallacy. It's the two quoku fallacy, the U two fallacy, and it's it's not a rational way to to create beliefs. But Bruce Ware, biblical scholar, thinks it is. Um, he's trying to do a you too mo moment maybe it's like a me too moment you know where uh, he says look at this we, we can't believe this thing in the bible because look at over here at this part in the bible we can't believe that either you talk to atheists they do this all the time you believe this thing in the bible well over here it says you shouldn't mix fabrics see see since you don't do that then you shouldn't do that homosexuality um that that's great and fine because you don't you wear mixed fabrics. You wear mixed fabrics. You should be a homosexual. This is basically their argument. You should be a gay guy if you wear cotton and polyester. Um, uh, maybe, maybe that works. Maybe, maybe for Bruce Ware. I, I think he's wearing mixed fabrics. He might, might in fact be a homosexual. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on it. Uh, so if, don't pull this out of context, me saying Bruce Ware is a homosexual. Don't clip that part and then just put it places because uh, me saying Bruce Ware is a homosexual would in fact be out of context. Be, uh, he might be mi wearing mixed fabrics there. So you two, it's a logical fallacy. Let's not do it. And hopefully Bruce Ware, biblical scholar, extraordinary, very smart guy, uh, not super fat it turns out, and also with a beard. Let's see what he says about uh, this. The next, I'm sorry, two, two of them go in the next chapter to Sodom and Gomorrah. The one that doesn't go probably is 
God taking on human form, perhaps the second person of the Trinity. But we read, and the Lord said, notice it's Lord, it's, you know, it's all caps Yahweh. The Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. Listen, I will go down now to Sodom and Gomorrah and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. So here you have a case where if you're going to interpret Genesis 22 in a way that Abraham literally does something that causes God. If you believe this thing about the Bible, then you should believe this other thing about the Bible. We we don't want to believe this thing about the Bible. Oh, no, man, we got to distance ourselves from that. So that means that we should take everything in the Bible. Everything is up for grabs. We should be able to freely reject everything that the Bible says. Oh, we don't want to believe this part. Uh, that means uh, just pick and choose your other parts that you want to believe or disbelieve. This this is our metric. This wh where does where does this guy teach? This is coming from Southern Seminary. Don't go to Southern Seminary. If you're picking a seminary, don't go to the one where they say just kind of just pick and choose. You know, if if there's one part of the Bible you don't like, um, then we just pick and choose the ones that we do like, and then we just kind of ignore the ones we don't like. And it's okay because. If we got one we really don't like, that's already set the precedence that we just threw out the ones we don't like. Uh, th this is how we do the Bible here. So it's like you throw out one and you set the precedence and you've, you've already done a little bit of it. Like, let's say, let's say you cheat on your wife, right? And then you say, hey, there's this other girl I could cheat with. I've already done it once. You know, what's a little bit more cheating, right? So, so this is Bruce Ware's argument. <clears throat> if you cheat on your wife, Go ahead and you could cheat on more wife, you know, your your wife's more with other ladies. Uh, maybe there's there's a different lady that you find and yet that's who's attracted to you. And since you cheated the first time, go for the second one. That's okay. This is this is what we do. The cheating precedence has been established. Here's the argument, biblical scholar extraordinary. Bruce Ware, I'm not saying he cheats on his wife. I'm not saying it's with a man because he's a homosexual. So do not quote me out of context saying Bruce Ware cheated on his wife with a man because I did not say that. So don't clip that little bit out of context. Bruce Ware, tell us. I had to change his mind, literally. Then what do you do with this? I don't know until I get there. So God is not omnipresent. He doesn't know what's taking place in, it, in another part of the world until he gets there. And he doesn't know what is true right now. I'll go down there and find out if their outcry is actually true or not. Look at all these horrible things the Bible says. So definitely we can't believe it. And uh, then we shouldn't believe other parts of the Bible. Uh, all right, I got it. I, I'm going to write down this. This is this is brilliant biblical scholarship. Thank you, Bruce Ware. I, you should teach all the classes on the Bible. Not So not until I get there, then I'll know, right? So God doesn't know what takes place in other areas. He's not omnipresent. He doesn't know what's true of the past. He doesn't know what is true at the present. Well, you can't believe that. Oh, oh, that's those are very untenable beliefs. So if you, woof, we don't want to believe that. So throw this passage out, and then also Genesis twenty-two that we just looked at. That's a different verse and passage altogether. Let's throw that out too, because we don't want to take Genesis eighteen. Genesis twenty-two is also out by proxy. It's like four chapters later. So uh, Genesis eighteen, you just kind of grab a group of verses and chapters, maybe like ten chapters plus or minus Genesis uh, 18, and all those we could just throw in the trash and ignore.
because this one says some things that we don't want to believe. It's funny, like Will Duffy will take this passage and he'll say, well, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is a, this is a Christological event, Jesus in human form. And, and legitimately, Jesus doesn't know what's going on in Sodom because, of course, we read in the Bible that Jesus doesn't know things on earth. He doesn't know uh, the time of the the coming of God. It says in, in Mark, Mark uh what a 1332 but it's also jesus he's praying to god saying your will be done if possible take this cup from me god thinks or jesus thinks that there's there's an open future that things could change that he could change god's heart he grows in wisdom and in favor with god there there's a growing and there's a learning experience that we see through jesus throughout the bible and will duffy will take these these instances and cons this concept that jesus on earth doesn't know things that's not very controversial. And he'll say in Genesis 18, this is a Christological event. This is Jesus, and he legitimately doesn't know what's going on in Sodom. But then there's other people. There's other people who say, yeah, God can distance himself from sin. God can do those things. God's not like maybe like a formula. Some people think God is a formula and God needs to distance himself from sin. And so there's God's uh, presence and or absence in the charismatic, charismatic presence, that book, which states that God's closeness is a factor of sin. So where there's a lot of sin, God withdraws. And so in cases like this Sodom and Gomorrah, God's pulled away because the sin is so great. He doesn't have to be there. And metaphysically, he's repelled. Like a, like a magnet being flipped on its side. You're just pushing him away from the sin area. And then also, of course, you got the default belief that God doesn't have to be somewhere if he doesn't want to. God could do things. God is a person. He has volition. God is not forced to know everything. He's not a function of your metaphysics that uh, we don't really find in the Bible anywhere at all. And so there's a lot, a lot of different positions, a lot of different open theist positions. But Bruce Ware, being an open theist, who is not a homosexual and has not cheated on his wife with a man, this guy, Bruce Ware, he, who is an open theist, he doesn't think that we should take this passage seriously, which definitely is within the realm of open theism. That's, that's a valid and acceptable open theist belief. As uh, open theist Bruce Ware, is, he's taking that position, so we can watch open theist Bruce Ware take that position. And... I get, that is a subset of views in open theism, not to take these texts literally. So like the Thomas J. Ords of the world, they're going to reject certain passages of the Bible. The, the Greg Boyds are going to reread the text that, you know, you, you really don't want to accept. Maybe uh, God's committing genocide against certain people groups. You don't, you don't want to believe those. So you could kind of just kind of pick and choose. If a passage says something you don't like, you can throw it out. This open theist subsets can believe these things. The Bruce Ware open theist subset does believe this. And of course, none of that is true of God literally. Again, this is an anthropomorphic way of speaking, a human way of talking that is not proper to God. The Bible just talks about God in ways that, you know, we don't really shouldn't take seriously. It's, it's just saying stuff that humans can understand. But if you believe it, you're a heretic, and you should be kicked out of the evangelical theological society. If you believe what the Bible wrote for our human comprehension, you're out. You're out of here. Get out of Christianity. We don't want you. Literally. So I think it's in the category 
of, uh, of, of passages that speak of bodily parts of God, the strong right arm of the Lord, the eyes of the Lord. Well, those bodily parts are not literally true of God. They're yeah, definitely, because there's not a definite strong Jewish tradition that extends well past the first century Jews literally believing God has a body. We just throw that out. We, see, we read something. You don't like it. You just throw it out. And that gives us precedence. That gives us precedence to just pick and choose what we want. You see something in the Bible. It says mixed fabrics. You know, I'll wear mixed fabrics. That's fine. Homosexuality. Oh, yeah, that's great. I'll get some, uh, get some dudes, right? Just pick and choose. Just pick what you want to believe, what you don't want to believe. Again, not saying this man is a homosexual and not saying... Uh, not saying that he has cheated on his wife with a man. Those are things I'm not saying. Do not quote me saying those things. They're, they're metaphorically true, anthropomorphically true. I think the same thing is true here. But so indeed, God does not literally change his mind. He knows everything. For the, the they're true in one sense, but don't believe what it says. So you read it and just dump it. Read and dump. Read, then dump. The end from the beginning, as Isaiah 46 says, uh, and so we can have confidence to know that, yes, he changes his plans from what he previously said he would do. From time to time, we see that in Scripture. But those plans always, always reflect his eternal purposes and what he has already designed should take place. And nothing that happens in human history actually changes God's mind. I, I think, you know, if you, if you hold the view that God learns things and therefore literally changes his mind. Perhaps we want to call that theistic mutalism, that God can change. I wonder, I wonder if we know any scholars, any biblical scholars, I don't know, just, just throw a dart somewhere at some sort of board, just throw a dart somewhere. Maybe we, maybe we might be able to hit someone very close, maybe someone, maybe someone on screen who believes that God can in fact change, who's who has a whole manifesto against open theism explaining how he's an open theist. I wonder, I wonder if we could find that somewhere. I don't know. Maybe, maybe one of these days we're going to find answers to these questions. You end up with a view of God that not only conflicts uh, with the Bible all the way through. Uh, all the way through the Bible. Because remember, it, it conflicts with the view of the Bible because we already cut out the parts that we don't like. So we, we found those passages. We cut them out. We threw them out. So they don't count as part of the Bible. And so this other new view that we uh, we retain, that we we actually really didn't get from the Bible, did we? Because we forgot to read Isaiah, and then we just assumed away all the things that we didn't like. Um, I guess we didn't get it from the Bible. But if you cut out all the parts of the Bible that contradict it, the Bible is united on this principle of determinism, of God knowing all future events. Uh, yeah, I... I will have to agree with Bruce Ware on this point. No joke. If you cut out all the parts of the Bible that contradict Calvinism, then Calvinism can be read in the Bible. It's a possibility. I'm not saying that if you cut out all the parts of the Bible, then Calvinism can be read in the Bible. Uh, but it it's not contradictory with the Bible anymore. So you cut out all the parts of the Bible that contradict Calvinism. That's a lot of the Bible. So you're going to be maybe left with like, maybe like Ruth. So you kill all the other books. You cut all the other books out. Maybe not even Ruth. Uh, maybe you're left with Esther, actually, because Esther really doesn't talk about God. So cut out all the other books of the Bible but Esther. And Calvinism 
might in fact be then compatible with the Bible. I agree with Bruce Ware on this point. Through, but you end up with a view in which it's hard to trust God, right? It's hard to trust a God who does not know what's going to happen in the future. Right. I'm always on pins and needles like, ah, I can't, I can't trust God. Oh, no. I just, oh, what, what do I do? I'm always so frantic. So uh, I think Bruce Ware hit the nail on the head. I'm frantic and neurotic, absolutely neurotic. I'm like, I can't, I can't trust God. What if, what if something changes? What if, what if, oh, oh no. What if God changes? And then I'm like, yeah, then I sit sit around at night, like thinking about God changing, and it's nerve wracking. Like my, my my body starts to shake. It's like I don't know. I can't, I can't control myself. And then and then sometimes sometimes I can't fall asleep. And then I'm awake till like two in the morning, thinking about how I can't trust God because the future's open and and God could change. It's yeah, this. I wouldn't want this life. To, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, right? But oof. This, these are these are the troubles of being open theist, uh, being absolutely neurotic in everything we do, and uh, just crazy and trust issues. Can't trust God anymore. If God, God can do something new, the only way we could trust God is if God forever has eternally decreed someone's falling away from God. Like Matt Slick's daughter, you know, like she grew up, like everyone thought she was, you know, a pretty good Calvinist, that she was strong in the faith, that she was one of the elect, but God's eternal will predestined her to fall away and become an atheist, a pretty bad person. And so I guess now, now that I think about it, I guess she didn't really have very much security in God's unchangingness. In fact, in fact, God's unchangingness in his decrees that forces her to be an atheist and die in unbelief. I don't know if she's not dead yet. Uh, and die in unbelief. I, I think that's, that's actually a little bit concerning too. Oh no, now I'm at this crossroads. I'm, I'm eternally conflicted if God controls everything. And then also if God can change, both, both results are, are very nerve-wracking because the results of each of those uh, are, are pretty, uh, you know, if people eternally predestined to hell are definitely going to hell. Even even people that you thought were Christians, even the elect, uh, go straight to hell. Do not pass go. Straight to hell. Eternal decree. No changing. So I guess that doesn't give me any security either. I guess I'm just going to be a neurotic mess. Whatever system of belief I get. Uh, but Bruce Ware, uh, he doesn't seem very neurotic. I don't, there's no shaking in there. I don't know if fat guys shake. But uh, there's no shaking in there. Uh, maybe his beard might, sh I, you know, I don't know if he's shaking under his beard. His beard's not very thick. And so maybe I'd see his face shaking uh, in neurotic unbelief. But I think, I think he is not, in fact, worried. Because God can't change. And then if he is one of the eternally damned who everyone thought was elect, then so be it. So that, that might be his position. At least he has the benefit of knowing that was for God's greatest glory. You might be burning in hell forever. But God's getting the maximum glory from that. Uh, so you can take heart in that. Knowing that God cannot change your burning for eternity for his greatest glory. There, there's a lot. There's a lot of security in those beliefs. Uh, I remember my dad. Um, uh, he's dad. passed away now, but he was a wonderful Christian man. And one of his songs that he would sing in the car uh, had a refrain that went like this. Many things about tomorrow. I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow. 
and I know he holds my hand. I sing mostly Taylor Swift in the car, so it's a little bit different of experience for my kids. I mean, what strength there is for Christian people to know that we hold the hand of the God who knows what is going to take place in the future and isn't taken aback, isn't surprised, isn't flummoxed uh, you know, by things that happen as we are. So when we are puzzled, we go to the one who is not. It's almost like he's reading like an open theist book where like uh, John Sanders, he wrote a book. He said, God is surprised and, and puzzled and neurotic and always changing and, and being surprised. And he's walking around all surprised and stuff. I do remember that part of John Sanders book. So it is an accurate representation. You got to give Bruce Ware that. Uh, so it throughout this, I, we're, we're going to stop here. I don't think I'm going to watch another 20 seconds. Maybe we could watch another. I'm not going to watch it. But you can, if you want, go watch the last 20 seconds of this interview. But the biblical scholar extraordinaire, he definitely covered the context of Isaiah. He definitely covered variant readings of his uh, Samuel proof texting, right? He definitely, he definitely told us who was talking. I, I remember that. He definitely showed us in Jonah that God definitely knew what was going to happen. Also, also, he definitely showed us Jonah knew what was going to happen. He also showed us definitely that, you know, Genesis 22 doesn't mean the open theist thing. And he did so by telling us that we shouldn't believe Genesis 18. Uh, we shouldn't believe Genesis 18. Therefore, by extension, uh, Genesis 22, you know, that's pretty close. You just throw that out as well. And then, and then he told us that uh, open theists are nervous wrecks just filled with anxiety. You know, I know I'm filled with anxiety all the time. It's like, I don't know. I don't know if the whole universe is going to hold up tomorrow. Oh, man, I don't know if the sun's going to rise. Maybe. Oh, I don't know what's going on. You know, I'm filled with anxiety all the time. I'm one of those nervous wrecks that he's describing. So his his criticisms of other open theists, because he is open theist, his criticism of other sects of open theists is spot on and uh, very intellectual, intellectual man. We could see him. Here's a close up of this man. Not fat, not super fat, just a medium fat, uh, with a beard. Very intellectual guy. He's got glasses, so you know he's smart. We know he's been thinking because glasses, you know, you have to read with when you wear glasses or something like that. Very intellectual man. And I'm glad I spent my time reading his book. I got the, his book over here. Well, I got quite a few copies of this book. I've been picking them up over the years. I don't know why I'm collecting the same Open Theist uh, Bruce Ware book, but I got like three or four copies and and on Kindle as well. So uh, he's, this guy's got all my money. This is probably how he afforded, afforded this suit. My, my probably combined total of like 30 bucks that he probably bought a suit with that. So I'm glad that I funded your suit. And I'm glad that uh, you've imparted your wisdom to me. Thank you so much, Bruce Ware. I, I would be lost without you. I would be even more of a nervous wreck than I am now if it wasn't for you to tell me all about the Bible with such honesty. Honesty, integrity, this man radiates all of these things. Thank you, Bruce Ware. Fellow open theists, yeah, thank you for coming out as open theists. I'm welcoming you with open arms. Not a homosexual either welcoming you with open arms. Thank you, Bruce Ware.